Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers. I'm a historian of France and an insatiable cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were back at university, which indeed is so long ago now that Piers Brosnan was the hot new Bond at that time. I mean, that's literally true. In fact, I think I gave him the golden eye on. Um, So this week we are doing a triple header of the big three global phenomena blockbusters the last um, month or so. James Bond, the most recent, the final Daniel Craig, No Time to Die. Dune, based on the 1965 novel by Frank Herbert, but directed by Denis Villeneuve in an astonishing kind of high tech way. And the completely repulsive Squid Game on Netflix, which um, has... (laughs) included simply because um, it was the most watched Netflix of all time, exceeding even Bridgerton, which, as you might remember, Tom and I had a few scathing words to say about them, but at least um, Bridgerton was sort of easy on the eye. Uh, to me, the, the Squid Game success is just a thousand times more depressing and, and, and bewildering than even Bridgerton. But therefore, we've decided to bring them all three together. And yeah, we're going to look for a few similarities and differences, aren't we, Tom? We are, I'm just going to throw, as we always do, some kind of critical comment in here. The Telegraph gave James Bond five stars, uh, saying that Daniel Craig's James Bond send-off is extravagant, satisfying, and moving. Um, And perhaps no less ecstatic, Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian also gave June five stars and said that Denis Villeneuve's awe-inspiring epic is a moment of triumph. Um, I haven't looked at any reviews for Squid Game, partly because I share some of Zoe's sense the Squid Game is a slightly repulsive phenomenon that I can't <laughs> quite understand how it's become this enormous <laughs> Netflix sensation. To me, and this is somebody who has only dipped into the series, full disclosure, um, it just trades on the popularity of something like Hunger Games uh, and is a retread of a kind of classic old Japanese um, films by Beat Takeshi. You know, there's a famous Battle Royale, which is a kind of wonderfully sadistic, sort of brilliantly funny Japanese film about people killing each other as a sport. And this just felt like a a retread of all of that, but with a kind of K-pop gloss. You know, we're in a world where people are so infatuated with modern Korean culture at the moment and Korean cinema has become so trendy that now let's have Korean TV. But the core concept just feels like an emotionally illiterate video game. Uh, I, I really felt there was not much going on. Is that fair? Uh, well, it's interesting. You know, you're reacting to a, a certain emptiness. I reacted to just the sheer distressing gore. I mean, everybody seems able to laugh off the most disgusting violence, but I actually find it quite upsetting. And I find it bizarre that in this age of trigger warnings and every sort of possible sensitivity being, you know, overly catered to and, and sort of warned about, you can just find yourself in the middle of like, apparently like a great, you know, best-selling Netflix um, TV show watching characters being kind of gunned down and blood flying out of them onto each other and in a, as you say in this sort of really disturbing dystopian hunger games setup so the the kind of you know premise of squid game obviously is is that these hopeless people in debt are sent to this kind of center where they can potentially 
get lots of money, but in doing so, they have to participate in these games where a vast number of them are going to be shot dead on the spot in front of each other as they go. And I was just, and apparently the kind of main character, and there are a few other main characters, apparently we, you know, get to look forward to lots of people we vaguely care about being sadistically but sort of comically absurdly kind of mown down in the course of these games apparently though it's supposed to just be a comment on uh, the korean debt crisis the per- the, the, the personal debt crisis so koreans are in more debt i think than any any other people and it's i don't think it's about state debt it may be but it's definitely about it's definitely about individual debt so apparently it's it is definitely a kind of political comment on on that sort of extreme financial um, status of many of the citizens there but what's so interesting is you know why is the rest of the world responding to quite a specific type of social problem that's the kind of more interesting socio backdrop to, to squid game but my god it's it's just gruesome and upsetting and i just can't believe that this passes for entertainment to me it was just it was actually i had to watch with my eyes covered um, and i think actually that takes us to the potentially a bridging point which is that you know all three of these blockbuster screen events revolve around huge amounts of violence and destruction mm. only expressed in different ways but i think squid game is the one that that has gruesome hollow mocking mor- absence of morality uh, really and yeah. the other ones don't have that what do you think about the play of morality across all three of these extremely violent blockbusters and indeed the the the, the, the kind of appetite crowds have for for this kind of yeah, this large-scale gruesomeness. Well, standing in the background of Squid Game, as I suggest, is a sort of video game shoot-em-up. And I think it's interesting that you found it so affecting, Zoe. I think we've just got to remember that for people playing video games, you know, gunning people down is sort of part of popular leisure now for a whole bunch of people. And I felt that Squid Game just, you you felt as attached to these characters as you would to people that you were kind of going to blow up on level four of of, of the game. So... I, I felt the um, the hollowness was something to do with the way that video games are infiltrating television or infiltrating um, cinema. Now, that doesn't always have to be in ways that are emotionally reductive, but I felt some of the, the callowness of this, and you're right to say there's something amoral about it, and there's a sort of cartoonish violence, suggests maybe something to do with that, that video game origin. And the others, the other two, I think are really interesting in terms of the, the morals, in that Bond feels like a much more comforting moral narrative. You know, it really is a story about little England saving the world yet again. Um, It's a sense of, you know, against adversity, the kind of slightly wily, slightly long in the tooth, but kind of well-meaning agent and the British establishment are nonetheless able to save the world order. It's quite a conventional morality. I mean, it tries to suggest a sort of equivalence at one point the baddie says to bond we're both very similar in our ways you know we're, we're both highly destructive characters but the screenwriters and the directors clearly don't believe that yes we try and give bond the odd demon here or there we try and make him a slightly sort of more agonized character especially in daniel craig's playing because i think craig is a really sensitive actor but essentially this is always a kind of goodies and baddies manichaean kind of universe uh, but I think it'd be interesting to think about the politics of where that comes from, maybe in a, in a minute. Um, whereas what I loved about Dune, and I, I can't contain my hype for Dune, and I know we're meant to be being cutting through the hype, but I have to say this blockbuster thrilled me. And it thrilled me precisely because it wasn't very sentimental. Dune actually isn't very interested in character. Like, it's not very interested in personality. Um, 
it feels instead so stylized and so ritualistic and mythical that it doesn't really care about moral development. I mean, it doesn't really care that much about plot. The thing it reminded me of, Zoe, um, was something like a Philip Glass opera, mm. you know, where it's very, it can be very static, it can be quite slow, but also incredibly beautiful. And it becomes weirdly immersive in its, in its stasis. So yeah, Bond is a moral story where there's a goody and baddie and there's a clear narrative arc. June to me felt like almost a series of tableau and tableau that could have gone on forever almost, um, but where the morality is, is far more murky, I think. And that's got something to do with the, the funny sort of politics of it as well. Um, what did you make of the morality of the Bond story, Zoe? Well, uh, just to just to quickly just agree with you, uh, interesting observation with the Philip Glass. It, it reminds me, as now that you mentioned, of Akhenaten. Is that what you were thinking of? Yeah, absolutely. This kind of Egyptian, timeless, hieratic. There's yeah. a posh word. Yeah, then you might want to unpack that. Even I might need some help on that one. <laughs> Slightly, sort of, what's the word? A sort of solemn, sacred quality. Oh, I like um, that. Okay, hieratic. Yes, beautiful. Everybody, hieratic. Yes, very much so. <laughs> Well, so in terms of the morality of Bond, I think it's got a very reassuring moral compass, actually. Um, and of the three, it's obviously the only one that has traditional morality rooted in concepts like romantic love and parenthood mm. um, and family duty. And in, in a way, humanism, there's still also an epic quality to this choice to choose the path of, of good and the choice to choose totalitarian all-encompassing evil and yet the two can come from the same place so the the woman that bond played by Leia Seydoux the woman that bond falls in love with and, and marries you know the film opens with her watching her mother be gunned down by this terrifying demented child of a family which had itself all been gunned down by her father so they have sort of slightly parallel motivations except she becomes a good and is with Bond and he becomes incredibly evil and her interpretation is to fight for good. You have the kind of the, the everyday moral goodness of, of Bond despite his obvious flaws um, and, and of Bond's universe and his, his colleagues and his henchmen. And then you have this not just this bad in, her, in his opponent, but this you know, epic bad, the bad that won't be satisfied until it's, it's destroyed mm. all of human life. No, I, I agree with you, Zoe. And I think in a way they could have made the baddie more compelling if there was a stronger sense of the, the, like where his, what his animus is really aimed at. I mean, I agree with you, this sort of anti-humanism is, is, is interesting. And there is this bit with the kind of garden, you know, where he's created this sort of funny sort of refuge where he has his garden and that's in a way the only thing that he can kind of control. And his sort of dislike of humanity as this sort of messy or unnatural force that might be, you know, they could have really made an eco baddie, which I think would have been, would have been fascinating, but I think they're probably not quite ready to do intellectually. Um, instead, it fell back into maybe he, there's a weird racial dimension to this. You know, there was sort of echoes of it being maybe sort of anti-African at one point. There's a quite muddled conversation about whether he's trying to sort of punish particular races and ethnicities. Um, but, but what I did like, actually, was poison. Um, I liked the fact that his mode of action is, yeah. is through poison, um, which is a very sort of unspectacular kind of evil, I guess. It makes you think of the recent Salisbury poisonings or whatever, mm. obviously. Mm. Um, but it's quite nice that it wasn't a, you know, a giant bomb or a giant laser, but this malingering thing, this sort of nasty malingering thing against which humans 
really uh, even the most sort of brave humans are, are sort of rendered completely impotent and, and useless. And so I thought I thought poison was a masterstroke. Actually, it captures something about the maybe our sense of what evil is becoming, and that it's not about these sort of spectacular one-off atrocities, uh, but more about something you know that's that's enduring, like enduringly contaminated and corrosive. And so I thought that I thought worked well. It's just that the baddie could have just been so much better shaped. And they brought in Phoebe Waller-Bridge for goodness sake. Fleabag Phoebe was brought yeah. in, um, and I felt even she didn't manage to give the Rami Malik villain much much sense of motivation and i think she also let down the female characters i don't know what you thought about the women in this bond zoe but despite mm. phoebe waller bridge being involved do you really think the women had much to do the leah sidhu character bond's wife we find out mother of his child i think she had some clout and some actual importance in the plot but i think the the woman they put in as the next 007 mm. this sassy black woman she was horribly underused the start her kind of entry is awesome yeah collapses and crumples so i think the the women were a little bit kind of lame but then i i think in the end with with bond it's always a showdown between the two men you know the the evil the, the bond and the and yeah. the baddies I, I think Bond's dialogue was crappy too. I mean, what you realize is how thin a mm. character Bond actually is. If if it's not a ludicrous comparison, you know, has Bond turned into Votan? Like, you know, there yeah. is this sort of like old end of the hero burned out thing going on in, in this. And what I love, actually one of the better things about the film was that it was self-consciously valedictory. It's like, this is the end of the Daniel Craig kind of sequence of films. And this is maybe also the end of the Bond universe such as it was. And I think the things you're saying about diversity, Zoe, speak directly to that. That, you know, is this still a world where we can have white, you know, patriarchs um, for the British state running around saving the universe? Like, I think the, the, the belief in that and a, sort of a franchise that really was very rooted in a Cold War moment and continues to sort of thrive on Cold War tropes and types. You know, it's always something vaguely Russian in the mix. Maybe that is now just past its sell-by date. And there was a self-consciousness that this is probably the last version of that that you can politically plausibly get away with at the start of the 21st century, that mm. they, you know, there was a sort of letting go. Um, and so that burned out quality, I thought Craig mm. actually played quite beautifully, mm. you know, the sense mm. of giving up on a whole set of myths that are probably now a little bit, a little bit long in the tooth. Yeah, no, I think that's... That's actually, if that's the end of one era, how can we then pivot to Dune, where it's sort of this strange combination of timeless and futuristic, but also ancient? A, a whole new world of brown opening up. Yeah. I, I feel... More um, brown. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the ways you see that contrast is in the masculine types. And as you say, sort of Daniel, Daniel Craig, a sort of grizzled old bear, versus the Generation Z pinup that is Timothy Chalamet with all of his exactly. kind of strangely pan, androgynous, kind of like alluring quasi-feminine beauty going on. I mean, they're completely different male types. I actually think the women in June are amongst the strongest performers, which is also very interesting. Um, you know, you could think about the mother, Rebecca Ferguson, who I think is, is an actually extremely interesting character, and the steam ceiling cameo from Charlotte Rampling, that's almost mm. my favourite five minutes in the mm. whole film, mm. where she comes in as this sort of slightly demented mother superior, mother inquisitor, I don't know what you call that character, but, you know, she, she basically barks through a, through a veil, and it's completely thrilling. Um, so I think it's, it's interesting that there are, these, there are these quite strange, quite frightening female voices in the mix. 
um, and that the women actually do have a sort of subversive elemental power in this universe, um, unlike Bond world, where they're essentially decoration. They're essentially kind yeah. of accessories in, in, in kind of interesting ways. Yeah. Um, strange futurism of June that you put your finger on, Zoe, is both that it feels, you know, it's a novel written back in 1965, but that went on to influence nearly everything that came after it. So we know that um, George Lucas was completely obsessed with this. And so watching June now, you think, oh, this reminds me of that bit in Star Wars. Or, oh, it's just like, and, and that's because Lucas's mythic universe is completely indebted. A lot of the tropes and even a lot of the imagery of the world that Star Wars created is, is borrowed. So it, it feels both weirdly familiar, but also because it is so um, steeped in this quasi-religious, hieratic, I'm gonna use that word again, uh, this hieratic <laughs> quality, means that it remains very alien to us. I think in this day and age, we're quite used to quite sort of diluted versions of sort of mythology or religion. You know, superheroes are a quite diluted version of, of myth and religion. Whereas June is absolutely going both boosters with myth and religion. And as a result, it feels alien. You know, much of it feels so Islamic, uh, mm. as well as feeling sort of strangely Catholic churchy that this is, a, this is a strangely foreign world and it enjoys the foreignness. The one other thing I think that makes it feel current, to echo what you said, Zoe, is that it's a story about colonialism in disguise. I mean, it's quite interesting the way that it talks about occupation and so on, um, that the, the population on the planet clearly look a lot like um, Bedouin of various kinds. Um, there's all of this stuff about resource extraction, about environmental damage, it feels like a lot of the ecological concerns of the present and also some of the political concerns of the present, particularly around the Middle East, are, are being played out in, in, in this film in, in sort of unsettling ways. Um, what did you make, Zoe, of the use of technology in it? What's the, because it is a visually luscious movie. Like, how is the technology part of that? And why do you think people, or why did you respond so much to the visual dimension of it? I think in a way we're so saturated with chat and about technology now, but it's, it's so um, sort of tethered to social media and social questions, the technology that we have. And it's actually been a while since as people living in society, we've been able to experience, you know, hands-on radically new technology. Cause we hear all the time about the likes of Google and other companies creating AI and Google glasses that can do all these amazing things. And obviously in medical, in the biomedical sphere, there's incredible robot robotics and things like that, but, but ordinary people are not experiencing that. So the kind of wonders of science, you know, okay. We, we have like, you know, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and things landing on Mars, but that that's it really. I think the, the wonders of science have become mythologized without any imagery anymore so I, I think for me it was just incredibly refreshing to just indulge in genuine science fiction to be able to sort of see a really far-ranging and ambitious vision of what science and technology pushed to the ultimate extreme might look like in you know intergalactic terms frankly and and I think it's just we, we've actually just been stuck in a bit of a technologically social period without any of these sort of massively satisfying um, equivalents to like the computer or the phone or the radio. Mm. I mean, so, so to me, it was just, it just satisfied a craving for kind of grand science as it were, grand technology. And then I did think it was interesting why 
those visuals struck a chord with so many people and why there was something about that monochrome, that brown, that gray, those beiges that, that just were so beautiful. Those topes. Yeah, and it was it was just different from the, the crass Marvel universe, maybe. I, mm. I don't know. Just there was something that made you feel like you were in sort of the white company or maybe maybe like Calvin <laughs> Klein. I think that, you know, with, with Bond, the science is, is, you know, all about goodies, baddies, chemical. It's about warfare, chemical weaponry, whatever. It's about criminals and thugs. But Dune had that, it sort of transcended human criminality, really. And it was because of that intergalactic dimension. We are in a moment where we're having a, a second sort of space age, I think. And especially yeah. with all those concerns about the environment, the idea of going from not just from country to country, but being able to escape from world to world, planet to planet, is actually very now in terms of worries about what's happening to earth the one thing i just want to ask zoe and as a sort of closing point is that both of these films have been hailed as the salvation of cinemas you know mm. after the pretty dreadful time during covid these two blockbusters um have been seen as the as the you know the the shot in the arm that cinema needs it's worth saying that bond by the start of October, I think it had taken 88 million in, in the countries in which it was uh, it was available. And I suppose, do you think that these films are enough? Do you think that they, you know, that they brought you brought home to you again the pleasures of cinema, and you can see this being a, a way to kind of remobilize people for the cinema experience? Or, as I sort of think, is there something dangerous about making these the template for what cinema is? is that I wonder how many people who've rushed back for, for Bond or indeed the smaller audience that's gone to Dune, now they expect all cinema to be this kind of sublime, operatic, immersive kind of experience. That what, Where's the scope in that for the two-hander, you know, for the intimate domestic drama? You know, is there a danger that all other cinema starts to feel a little bit parochial? Well, I think, you know, I think those audiences have always been different. So, Tom, we're in the uh, happy subset of people who can... <laughs> enjoy an IMAX showing of Bond or Dune and get in there for the two-hander at the Everyman or the Picture House. So I, I don't think the person who likes the two-hander is going to stop going to the cinema because they've seen what IMAX can do or what Dune looks like at the Hampstead Everyman, which is where I saw it. <laughs> um, but uh, um, I, I think it's an interesting question. I, I think I think it, no, I actually feel positive about what these films have done for cinema. I think it's reminded people just how great the cinema is and it's it's made me think oh the cinema's back on the on the horizon but I do worry as you say like what else is coming through because actually at the moment if you said to me oh what else is on I wouldn't I have, I would have absolutely no clue there's there, there seems to be maybe a problem not with the people going but with what's actually filtering through I do you also worry about people's concentration span and by people's I mean mine films require sitting there for two three hours um and maybe, you know, lockdown's been really bad for that. That said, Dune and Bond were pretty freaking long. Yeah, I think I think they were. I think it's important to say they are both long. And I think that's one other interesting thing about the way they've been marketed as epic, not just in terms of the the range and the kind of richness of worlds that they conjure up, but also quite how long you're going to be sitting in front of them, yeah. especially with all of the trailers. I mean, like they are a, they're a yeah. long night in the cinema. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think in terms of future direction of travel, I agree with you, Zoe. If I was, and I do think, that they they've they've been brilliant at sort of galvanizing people it's just when i look ahead to what's coming you know one of the big releases um maybe in the next few weeks is this movie the eternals which mm. is a sort of a superhero spin-off 
um, but being directed by Chloe Zhao, um, who's the director of Nomadland. Yeah. And I think it says something that, that Zhao is making that kind of move, that she thinks, okay, I'm doing art house, but I'm now going to do art house on this kind of mass, you know, with, with these huge budgets, with these sort of superhero stories. And I think it's what's interesting about Denis Villeneuve as a film director as well, in that he did the Blade Runner reboot. He did Arrival a few years before that. I've always liked his films. But there is something going on where they, there is an attempt, a bit like Christopher Nolan, to bring blockbusters and art house together. Now, it doesn't always work, but I feel in an era where the cinema is trying to kind of get people excited again um, and create a sort of sense of event, there's clearly a pressure from studios to try and bring some of the creative freshness of people who are doing art house movies and apply that to these sort of big juggernaut kind of films with massive budgets mm. that they think they can kind of pack people in for. Um, final thought then, Zoe, then why the hype, uh, either for Bond or for June? Well, or for Squid Game. And I'm afraid to say, <laughs> first of all... Poor Squid Game has been left out. I'm not forgetting Squid Game. A thirst for violence, firstly. Mm. Secondly, a thirst for things that have nothing to do with our, you know, world's dystopias, you know, hellscapes, futurism, science fiction. Um, this is serious escapism going on at the moment. Um, and then I think the hype, I, honestly, the Squid Game hype is just, is, I'm afraid it's just going to have to remain a mystery to me, apart from that it must be because society is imploding um, <laughs> and, and we've just, the culture is over. Uh, but in terms of the other two, just fun. I mean, Bond is reassuring, you know, people, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a prestige franchise. Um, everybody loves a bit of Bond. You can count on, you sit back and relax and count on those special effects and it's just a really fun you know, as you say, morally simple um, experience. Dune is just a, a, a much more sort of, yeah, a grander, um, hieratic, if you will, uh, <laughs> experience and, and visually just so interesting. And, and we are so saturated by amazing visuals these days that to find something, and I think in a way that monochrome was the, was the genius of it because we're saturated by color as well. Um, it was just, just, just you know, we're very visual creatures these days, much more than text. And so it was just uh, a treat in that sense. What about you, Tom? Why the hype? I agree with everything you've said. I think Bond, as you say, is like a heritage brand. It's like having a digestive biscuit. Uh, and they, the people who were making it knew that. They knew that they had to do a version of the format that everybody loves. And they did just enough tinkering with the elements to make it feel like it had a sort of 21st century freshness. But essentially, this would this fitted into the kind of type, and people who love, you know, Bond from the from the sixties onwards will have felt a checklist of kind of familiar references and moves, and so it was sort of it gave that reassurance. And um, with June, I think it's also just a sense of, and this is more of a kind of um, film critic's admiration, but you know, this is a book that had defeated previous adaptations. And um, you know, Alexander Jodorowsky tried to make it, completely failed, didn't get anywhere. David Lynch did make it in the 1980s in a very unsatisfying film. And so the fact that somebody's been able to take this epic, unwieldy novel and make something of it as cinema, I think people are, people are excited about. Um, and that sense of expectation now, this is part one, we should say, there is more of this to come. And it's a mark of, um, again, what, what a franchise Dune is, that I came out after three hours of it and I was ready to see part two the next day. Like I felt hit me with the next installment of this, this strange and completely sublime universe. Mm. Amen to that, Tom. Bring on part two. And this time I'm not seeing it in the Hampstead Everyman. I'm seeing it in the IMAX. 
<laughs> with a lot of popcorn and not the nuts that I had, which was highly pretentious and not not suitable <laughs> at all. Um, not that Timothy Chalamet um, would be seen dead uh, eating nuts or popcorn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> neither would Rebecca Ferguson, and neither would the gorgeous Oscar Isaac. Oscar um, Isaac wouldn't touch a nut. The father in June, yes, he wouldn't touch a nut or a carb or anything. <laughs> um, but join us next time for um, Macbeth at the Almeida starring Shorshi Ronan. I refuse <laughs> to ever pronounce it right. Shorsha Ronan. Shorsha, right. Shorsha Ronan. Um, uh, and we, 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 we are aware that we keep promising that we're going to do State of Fear. And we will, <laughs> but just not yet.